Good afternoon. Welcome to the well. If you're a guest with us, uh, my name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here, so thank you. Uh, we are in the book of First Timothy. We, uh, we are in chapter 4. We're finishing chapter 4, I believe, today. We'll get through uh, verse 9 through 16. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Uh, and so we want you to have it. Um, additionally, if you are a guest with us and you... You know, you want to join in what God is doing here, uh, feel free to fill out that Connect card that's seated at around your, your chair. Um, so we're going to get right into it. I want to pick up in verse 8 where we left off last week. And the big, the big idea today, I want you to see, we're going to look at uh, uh, Timothy's ministry. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to Timothy and we're going to, he's going to speak to him on, on his ministry and his, his assignment. Uh, first thing we're going to see is we're to strive and toil, or toil and strive, for godliness with hope. And so in verse 8, we'll pick up in verse 8 to give us context, but we'll be uh, focusing in on verse 9 through 16. And so verse 8 says this, For while bodily training has some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds to the promise for this present life and also to the life to come. So this is what, God, training your body has value, period. It, it's true. This is not a, a taking this verse out of context. It's that it has value. And so he, he's relating to bodily training, uh, uh, training, fitness. He's relating it now to godliness. In the same way one would train their body, particularly a professional athlete or an athlete or, or someone uh, who's, who does any sort of training, in the same way he's saying uh, you should Pay attention to godliness and to train in a similar way. Discipline yourself, we talked about last week, for the purpose of godliness. In verse 9 he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What saying? That one he just said. That bodily training has value, but how much more value then does uh, godliness have? And so what is godliness? It literally uh, means like Little uh, like God, that's what it, it, godliness means. However, but we, we often think of godliness, when you think of someone saying, I'm, I'm godly, you, you, you picture something that someone probably has told you that uh, a, a godly person, and you're probably just thinking of their, their moral character, uh, which, which plays into effect. Uh, but, but, but by what standard? By what standard is one godly? Right, so you, someone might say, "Man, that's a very godly guy uh, or a very godly girl," and they're not a, they don't know love or trust God, trust Jesus at all. And they're going, "Man, that guy's godly." Why? Well, he does good things. He cares for his wife. He cares for his kids. You know, he pays his taxes. Seems like a pretty good citizen. He's pretty godly. Well, he might be. He might not be. By what standard? Those things don't necessarily make him godly. What makes him godly is that he reflects the nature and character of God. Godliness is not some uh, arbitrary statement given to some moral, uh, socially uh, acceptable person. Godliness is the reflection of the nature and character of God. I don't know why we get confused by that word, but that's what it is. Godliness, like God. Here's the reality. Mankind was made in the image and likeness of God. We're told this in Genesis 1. That, that Adam and Eve and therefore all mankind were made in the likeness of God. An image of God. They were, they were made godly. They, were, they had godliness. They had godliness and they were not affected or infected by sin. They were born perfect in the image of God, sinless. Adam and Eve. They're the only two humans who were born without sin, uh, minus Jesus. Uh, and 
they were born like God. Literally, the word imaging God or to the image and likeness of God, they, they were made to reflect God. That's what it means to image something. You look in the mirror, what does it reflect? You. Some of you like what you see, some of you don't. It's just, it's telling you what, it, what it's reflecting. The mirror is not the problem. Maybe the person in the mirror is, but it's reflecting the person who's staring into the mirror, correct? We are to be reflections of God. We were to, to reflect the nature and character of God. And that was, that was Adam and Eve's divine assignment to reflect the nature and character of God and everything they, they did, everything they thought, everything they said, and how they, they lived their life and worked their ministry and, di- and, and ruled over the world that God gave them to rule over and lead in like God. They were ambassadors, representatives of God. Problem is that sin entered the world. They rebelled against the God they were supposed to reflect. It's like smashing a mirror, punching it, and then seeing all the distorted, uh, the distorted image that is now there uh, is not fully reflecting you if you're looking in a mirror in a broken mirror. We as mankind, Adam and Eve, through sin, have, they've been, we've distorted the image of God. And so through sin, through their rebellion, uh, there's not only a sin affected them, it affected uh, the entire human race. We're now born sinners, both by nature, meaning we inherited it from, our, from Adam and Eve, and we're, we're sinners by choice. What is sin? Sin is the rebellion against God. It's, it's, it's violating God's law, his command in word, yes, in deed, yes, but even in thought, in heart, in action, God requires that we worship him. From a sincere, authentic heart that loves him, that's been transformed by him. So you can put your hands up and and sing songs to Jesus, but have a dead, hard heart. You look around at at many Christians, and many of you who have seen, you've been like, man, I went to this church, went to that church, and man, they say one thing, and they live something different. This is not what Timothy is to do. Say one thing and live something different. He is to labor to strive for and discipline himself for godliness, to reflect the nature and character of God in his entire life. Well, how do you do that if sin enters the world and, and, it, and it affected and it's, and it's marred the image of God? Well, in Genesis 3, we're told uh, though sin came in, there is God's promise of redemption. Through the seed of Eve, through the seed of the woman, would come a Savior. His name is Jesus. Through, through the faith and trust in Jesus, we can be made, made whole. We can be restored. We can have hope. We can have forgiveness. We can have redemption. We can have reconciliation. All that we have done in our sin, in our rebellion, in our distortion uh, uh, of the image of God, the shame that we have, the guilt that we have, the, the, the hope that we've lost can be restored through faith in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus the image, what we're told, he is called the image of the invisible God, has died in your place for your sin, so that through faith in him, he gives you his image, his righteousness, his perfection. And, and he receives your distortion, your sin, your wickedness, your shortcomings, your pain, your regret, your failings. He receives that. In exchange, you get his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the news we believe. But that is what makes one holy. That's what one makes one godly. So Paul's telling Timothy, you've been saved by Jesus. You've been made whole. You've been restored. You are to labor 
in the church and all the individuals in the church, not just the, the leaders and teachers, but, but the Christians in the church are to train themselves for the purpose of godliness. They've been saved, they've been made whole, they've been restored into the image and likeness of Jesus, and now they're to live and act like and walk in what they are and who they are. We don't earn Christ's love. We don't earn salvation. We don't earn redemption. We don't earn godliness. It has been given to us, granted to us by faith, not by works. Nothing you can do to earn it. We've been granted Christ's righteousness. So we are laboring to live out our true calling, to reflect the true nature and character of God. And that is what Paul is urging Timothy. And he's saying that is your your mission, your job. That is what you're doing, your labor. And he says this in verse 10, for this to that end, we toil and strive. We put in a lot of work, a lot of time. This life takes, to follow Jesus is going to take toil and strife. We live in a world that's hostile to Christ, to, to, to what Jesus has taught is, like I said last week, in many ways, hate speech. We're going to get a lot of hate speech today. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Uh, godliness, godliness is not it's, if you're guessing, that's a joke. It's not hate speech. People will say it is. We're told in, in uh, First, Tim, First Peter 2 that sometimes they mistake godliness. They call us evildoers, and though we're not, it's just what, what happens. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that godliness has value, that we should toil and strive for it, as he says. He says, because we have our hope set on the living God. Our God is not dead. There's no other religion in the entire world that claims that their, sa- their, their God, their deity, has conquered Satan's sin, death in the grave, and offered hope and salvation for anyone who believes. Every single religious leader in human history is dead, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. That sounds really narrow-minded. I'm sorry, he's alive. We know where everyone else's tomb is. Jesus has no tomb because he's not in a tomb. And his spirit lives in the hearts of those who believe. He says, to this end we toil, we strive, because we have a hope on a not a living God, a God who is alive, a God who is not dead. This should give you great cause to celebrate and joy if you're in Christ. Your God is alive. That means that he is active. That means that he has power. That means he, he is present. That means he's available to give you hope in, right now. Additionally, he is the savior of all people, meaning this, that there's no one that can be saved from Satan, sin, death, or the grave except through Jesus. There's no salvation. In order to be saved, he says, you must believe. You must believe. You must believe. And so Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, Here's, here's some instructions for you as you lead the church that, that we are to, we, because we've been saved by Jesus, we are to strive for godliness, meaning we are to, to walk in Christ's likeness as we, as we were created to, as image bearers of God. We are to tell people of the, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, that, that you're going to do ministry in a world, uh, Timothy, where people don't know or love or trust Jesus. But you're going, to be, you're going to be a means of, of God's grace to, to share with them that there is hope. 
that there is redemption, that there is salvation, and there is no other hope, redemption, or salvation. Imagine saying that in today's world, where your uh, college degree would tell you that that would be hate, like I said, hate speech, narrow-minded, bigotry, to say there's only one hope, one redemption, one salvation. I want you to know in Timothy's day, it was also probably received in a, in a similar manner. He's literally telling the powers, they're preaching a message in, in a Roman world, a Greco-Roman world, that who, whose political leaders thought they were gods. And Paul's saying, hey, you're going to do ministry, you're, and you're going to tell the watching world that those leaders are not gods, that they must submit to the one true and living God. His name's Jesus. Anyone know what happened to these guys? They got killed. He's laboring and doing ministry not in a cultural climate that's, that's tolerant and diverse and accepting of everything he's saying. He's laboring in a context that if they obey God, they might have to disobey man. If they obey God, they might get killed by man. But he says, take heart, because our Savior, who was dead, he, they killed him. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. So if you're in Christ, not only are you, are you alive now, but though they kill you, you will live forever in his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. This is what he is saying to Timothy. The toil, the strife is worth it. The Christian life, church, we must understand, and Christian ministry comprise of toil, labor, that's work, and strife, that's hard. Timothy's going to face opposition. Timothy, we're about to find out, he's going he's to face lack of trust in those whom he's leading. They're, they're going to look at him and go, hey, you're too young for this. We don't trust you. He's going to face rebellion in the, in the church, church members and church leaders leaving the church, leaving the faith, opposing him, calling him names that he may not like, writing Google reviews that he wish did not happen. This is going to be a reality for Timothy. But Paul says, hey, labor with hope. hope not, your hope is set on a living God. That's not just advice to the pastor. It's advice to the church. Church, you labor with hope. Your hope set on Christ, who is the living God and the Savior of all people to those who believe. And so in, in all this, in all this, God is called in this environment, this hostile environment, where there's going to be pain, toil, strife that Timothy must endure, frustrations perhaps, failed expectations. He thought something was going to happen, thought that leader was going to be ready, and it, he wasn't. All of these things, Paul tells Timothy still to lead with boldness and to lead nonetheless. And therefore, in order to do that, it's going to take hope. Take hope on, on, in Jesus. You need to know this. If Jesus can save you from your sin, if he can deal with your sin problem, he can deal with all your problems. What is it for you? What is your problem? What is it that you're going through where you, you feel that, that there's just the pain and the pressure in your life is just more than you can handle? If Jesus can take care of your sin problem, he can take care of any problem. So labor, Timothy, with hope. Next, we look at Timothy as pastoral authority. The word authority, not a very um, fun term in today's context. We don't like authority. We don't like anyone in authority. We, we want to rebel against authority. We want to rebel against God, especially as our authority. But Paul tells Timothy this in verse 11. 
command and teach these things. That word command implies authority. It literally means to give an authoritative order. What is Timothy commanding, though? He's commanding what God commands. He is commanding what God commands. Timothy is not commanded to command things that God has not commanded. This is, this is not what it, this is sometimes in churches you get, people get mixed up and, and say that the preacher, the pastor, he's the voice of God. Listen to whatever he says. I have a private jet fund and I need you to fund it. The Lord has spoken. Like, I don't, I don't like flying, so, or riding boats. So I'm, I'm out of those, both of those. Cars are acceptable. I'm just kidding. He's not commanding anything he wishes. So when the church and in, in papal authority in the, in, the, in the time of absolute monarchs in, in world's history, we were told that the, that the, the pope uh, and the kings, they had these authorities, absolute authorities. They could just say whatever they wanted. And they, had, they had power and command and it was given to them by God. Not true. We are to command what God commands. God does put people in authority and they should lead in authority, but not absolute authority. The only one who has absolute authority and complete autonomy is God himself. So authority is not the issue. It's what do we do with the authority and what are we commanding in the authority. That Timothy is to command what God commands, which could get him into some trouble. The pastor and preacher, again, is not the voice of God. He is the herald of God's word, meaning this, he proclaims and declares and says, God has said this, we should obey it. Under what authority do we speak? We speak under the authority of God's word, God revealing himself to us. We stand on his authority. This is not just the preacher standing on the authority of God, but you must stand on the authority of God, and it should form your entire life. Moreover, it should inform your encounters. If someone says, Why do you, how can you make this claim? Paul's going to talk about, he's talked at length in, in other books of the Bible about marriage. He was not married. And people said, well, you're not married. You can't speak on marriage. Why could he speak on marriage? Because he's not speaking from his experience. He's speaking from God's authority. He's saying, God has said this about marriage. Therefore, church, we must submit to God's word. So Paul is telling Timothy to command these things. What the, these things are the things that he's, at least what he is saying is command the things that we have just spoken of in the previous paragraph. But likely he's, he's speaking to the entirety of this entire letter. Command not only that people strive and work and labor and discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness, but also for, for all of the things in which he has commanded in this letter. He, he gives this letter, uh, he gives them a warning about false teachers, about false doctrine. Additionally, he tells that he, he gives specific emphasis on how Christians should be equipped for godliness. He says, command these things. This isn't suggest these things. I need you to hear this. He doesn't suggest things. This is the same type of tone and type of uh, temperament and type of leadership Moses had when he walked down from the mountain carrying the ten what? Commandments. Not ten suggestions. The 10, let's talk about it and, you know, have a devotional on what these, these mean. And maybe our Bible study will talk in depth about how we know what they mean but fail to do it. No, he says, do these things. You don't need a devotion on it. You don't need, uh, you don't need a, a word study on it. If God has said it and it's clear, the response is, do it. Obey. Obey. 
Like, that sounds very harsh. It would sound harsh. I, I, I agree. It would sound harsh if this God didn't love you. If this God didn't give his son, perfect son, sinless son, to die for your sin. It's different. It's, it's different if a, a man who is a flawed man, who is a, a wicked man, who is heralding commandments, like I said, like many of the absolute monarchs in world history, the pharaohs additionally, the Herods, the Roman Empire, to herald and command with absolute authority. Yes, that is wicked, but God is not them. He loves you. He cares for you. He's come to rescue you. He's come to redeem you. And Paul's telling Timothy, hey, command what God commands. We live in a day that, that there's a lot of talk and make a lot of news and a lot of headlines about spiritual abuse and pastoral authority. People write blogs, do podcasts. People make a career over, quote, exposing pastoral abuse. I'm not saying that there's not pastoral abuse. I'm not saying that there's not spiritual abuse. But when someone commands what God commands and you say that's abuse, that's not true. That's the demonic lie. Heard this over and over through other pastors and other ministries and seen it in many places. If, if someone commands what God commands, they say, no, well, my pastor said this. He told me, you know, because I'm a Christian, I ought to obey Jesus. And, you know, he just was, was like, he gave me no other option. Like, what, what, what do you mean gave you no other? He told you to repent of, he, he pointed you to the scriptures. Did he threaten you? No. Did he uh, say he's calling the cops from you? Well, were you, what were you doing? Was it legal? Yeah. So that's a different story, right? That's a different story. A man abusing his wife ought to have the cops called on him. That's the first step in pastoral discipline to that guy. But here, he's saying, command the things that God commands. And so I'm not going to get into pastoral uh, abuse uh, in, in all the context that we see in the world we live in today. But I want to I I say that I do agree that there has been spiritual abuse in the church of Jesus. And it's horrific. And it's awful. And it ought to be repented of and condemned. But I need you to see that when we command what God commands, this is not abuse. Moses was not abusive in saying, you shall only have one God. First command. Second, you shall not make any idols. Those were not, those were not abusive statements. Those were God loves you. He's rescued, out of, rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. He's, he, he wants you to worship him. He wants you to worship him rightly. Therefore, Put away all the false gods. They're not giving you what you think they give you. Your God your, loves you more than anyone. Listen to him. Obey him. Jesus says, if you love me. Jesus says this. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Is that abuse? You tell me. If commanding what God commands is abuse, then Jesus, abusive leader who we all worship. That's how the narrative is going to go in, in culture and society. It's not true, but that's how the narrative goes for the people of God. So, so Timothy is to lead here with authority. But I want you to see this. Paul's telling this to him in authority over Timothy. Timothy is not to just have authority, to, but to be a man under authority. There's no one who's in absolute authority other than 
Jesus, who was also actually submitted to the will of the Father. Actually, there's no leader that has ever lived and breathed on earth that was, that was in authority autonomously, that was not submitted to some other, some other leader. And so Timothy is in authority, but he's under authority. Not just to Paul and his writing him this letter, but to the Ephesian elders as well. Abusive men will want authority without being in authority. That's true in the church. That's true at work. That's true in the home. Men who don't want authority, who just want, or men who want to be in authority but don't want to be under authority, either are abusive men themselves, have those tendencies, or they will set themselves a trap for further abuse to happen or to be caught in the snare of wielding authority unchecked. That's his pastoral authority. Next, we see his pastoral witness, Timothy's pastoral witness. 1 Timothy 4, 12. It says, let no one despise you for your youth. Or look, some of your translations may say, look down on you because you were young. Timothy is, is probably in his late 20s or mid-30s. Imagine being a, a pastor in his late 20s and mid-30s. I've been both of those. I'm currently in the, the latter, but I've been both of them. I can tell you this, there is a pressure that comes from being a young pastor that you feel from other people that is, that is either assumed or it's either uh, clearly directed that, that you feel that you have to be something or, or, or to, to do something particularly to please and win those who are older than you. It's, it's true. There is a reality that there is that, that pressure and perhaps Timothy is feeling this. Timothy can't help his age. He can't help his age. He can't help it. He can help his example, which Paul's going to direct him to. He says this, But set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Timothy can't help his age, but he can lead by example. Paul wants Timothy's life to be a witness to the congregation he leads. You can say what... Whatever you want about his age. And anyone, he's saying, Paul, Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, they can say whatever they want about your age. I need you to set an example for them. Additionally, there was another man who, who, who did ministry in his early 30s. He only did it for three years, actually. He, he had to, he abruptly, his ministry stopped at age 33. That was Jesus, another man who was young in his ministry from 30 to 33. Jesus had his public ministry. He's also an example to us, not just in how we ought to, to lead in our ministry, but an example that young men and young women and young individuals are not to wait till their 40s or 50s to start serving and loving Jesus. They're not to abdicate their maturity till later, but to encourage, this should encourage young leaders to, to not delay their adolescence, but to get involved in loving and serving Jesus early. Don't wait. But there is, however, a tendency for young pastors to, 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 to need to prove their value to older people who are older than them. Questions start coming to their mind. Am I worth following? How can I help them build trust with them? There, there, there can be a type of pressure. If unchecked, a young leader, if it's unchecked, this can lead to a type of people-pleasing a pastor will never be able to escape. Oftentimes, young pastors will do this. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be a young pastor. They're a vibrant leader. But, but 
there's folks in their congregations that don't like what they're saying, and so they start placating and tailoring things to those who are in the congregation. Many of them, if they're young, older, because so, they know that's how they're going to fund the thing, and they, they, they keep that going until later they're in their 40s and 50s, and they've, they've built their entire ministry on people-pleasing, and they don't know how to know, love, and trust Jesus and, and herald his word truthfully and be willing to take shots for the, the kingdom of heaven because they've never done it. Welcome to 2020. All the church is closed. The gospel seems to kind of be silent. The news, 2020, 2021, 2022, the fools have the microphone and the churches are afraid to even whisper that they might be pro-life. They're afraid. Why? Because they never stood for anything in the first place. They placated to culture, and it worked. When you could get business leaders to fund your ministry by giving pep talks and motivational speeches, you can go on vacation in the Bahamas. It's awesome. Why wouldn't you want it? And then you can make disciples who do the same thing. They love it too. Then all of a sudden, we lived in a world and we've just come out of it where everyone, a lot of young Christians, wanted to be in ministry. Why? I don't know why anyone would want to do this job. It's, well, when you punt on your responsibilities of what the job is, you don't command things, you just placate to things, you have no authority, you just, you just let people do whatever they want to do and just put Jesus or godliness or morality on it. Dude, it's effective. And so Paul is telling Timothy that, that his ministry should not be marked by people-pleasing, but by godliness. He says it this way, but, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. What he is, say, he is not saying is be, prove yourself to them in your speech. Prove yourself to them in your conduct so that they value you. Prove yourself to them, Timothy, so that they speak well of you. Prove yourself, Timothy. You're young. They don't trust you. Give them a reason to trust you. If they don't trust you based off your heralding of God's word, Timothy, be like Jesus and say, I'm going to keep going. Jesus would preach sermons and half the people would leave afterwards. And he said that was the goal, to preach a message, to clear out the, the herd. So people weren't just following him from, for his, his, uh, his status because they were convinced by his words. He says, set an example in speech. What he's not saying is, hey, set an example so they look at you and say, look how good he preaches. See, he's a young guy. He preaches good. At least he's a young Bible teacher. No, he's saying, be aware of your words, especially your teaching. Are you teaching and commanding what God has said? That's what he's, he's asking Timothy to be concerned about. He says, he, he's, he's not saying that preach and teach in such a way so others will follow you, but preach Jesus and let the Holy Spirit convict them and they follow Jesus Paul has been clear in his book, in his letter to the Corinthians, that he didn't care if they follow him or another preacher as long as they follow Christ. That's the goal. Follow Jesus. And so he's saying, set an example with your words. Meaning this, it's additionally, not just with his words, but he's speaking to something deeper in his heart. 
Jesus tells us this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning, what's in our heart will ultimately come out. If you're looking to only please people, Timothy, that's going to come out. It's going to come out. Your sermons are going to be tailored towards making sure everyone feels comfortable. They don't need to repent of sin. You can placate the culture. The standard here, church, is not the culture of speech. The standard is the scriptures. Literally, the word here, the word for speech is logos. The the same word that means the word of God. Breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Teach the Bible. See, some pastors will look at this, and some of you, uh, if you, without a, uh, you, with, with a cultural lens, will look at this and go, he says, set an example in your speech. See, well, what you just said from the scriptures is hate speech. He's not a very good pastor. See, he's narrow-minded. He's bigoted. They, they follow that type of things, those ancient writings. They, they do that. And so the standard is not what the culture says what speech should be. The standard is what the Bible says speech should be. Do you see this? The standard is the scriptures. And out of of your heart, if you know, love, and trust Jesus, if you love Jesus, Timothy, out of the abundance of your heart, you will speak. You'll speak the truth. You'll speak it in love. You'll speak it clearly. He says, not only in your speech, set an example, but in your conduct. Why, why, Jesus says this, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Jesus, through his teaching, was like, hey, why do, you, why do you call me Lord? Why do you claim I'm God? Why do you claim I'm your leader and you don't obey me? Timothy, with your conduct, you sh- should be lived out visual obedience to Jesus and his word. Set an example. We live in a day where, where the conduct of pastors, if they do what the Bible says, may be considered foul conduct by the standards of the culture. Therefore, the the congregation, if they uh, listen to the speech of the pastors heralding God's word and they obey and they obey God, they may be considered harmful to society. I say this not because we're there yet, because we're getting close. That day may come. That day may come. And if you love Jesus more than life itself, you will stand firm. But if you don't, you will not. This is why Paul's warning Timothy. They're facing, they faced similar things in their day. Or you may be a misguided Christian who will point to a verse like this and say, this pastor is, this isn't pastoral speech. He's not, he, he's not conducting himself, uh, quote, loving. Again, by what standard? What counts as conduct uh, that, that is acceptable must be defined by the scriptures, not the culture. Read through the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets or even uh, in the New Testament, John the Baptist, they made a mockery of the foolish religious idolatry of the day. Moses, literally, when the people were worshiping a golden calf, melted it and gave it to his people to, to drink so they would taste the bitterness of their idolatry. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying, like... <laughs> Christian pastors, many today, who, who conduct themselves according to namely what is acceptable in culture, not what is acceptable in, in the scriptures, and they punt on their responsibility to teach and, ter- and, and tell the truth of God's word are cowards and are unbiblical. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be like that because the cultural pressures and because of his age, he may be tempted to that. You have to see that. 
because of his age and because of the cultural pressures of his day, very similar to our day, he could be tempted to do that. Paul says, don't. Additionally, he says, in his conduct and then in his love. This word is agape. This is a Christ-like love. He says what should undergird Timothy's speech and his conduct and his ministry is a love that looks like Jesus, a Christ-like love. This is a love that, that should overflow in him for God, and then it should overflow to others. Again, the standard of what love is is defined by the scriptures. Jesus says it this way. There's no greater love than this. He defined love. He defined agape. He defined what this was. He says this, that, that there is, this, is, this is love. There's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. The gospel of Jesus is the epitome of ultimate unconditional love where Jesus dies for wicked sinners. Think about that. Undeserved. We rebelled against him. We hated him. We didn't love him. We rebelled. And he says, I love you so much that I will give myself for you. I will pay your penalty with my life. He says, that's what love is. That should rule Timothy's heart and cause him to worship God and love God alone. And then it should overflow in how he loves others. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, I believe. He says that uh, for if we are in our right mind, it is for your sake. He says, but if we're out of our mind, it is for Christ's sake because Christ's love controls us. He's, they're controlled by the love of Christ because they are convinced, he continues and says that they're convinced that, that Jesus is the only way and the only God. And that love that Jesus would die for sinners controls them, compels them, grips them, enslaves them. For they are controlled by the love of Christ. Timothy, be controlled by the love of Christ. You'll see it expressed in your, your, your speech because out of the overflow of the heart and the mouth speaks. You'll see it in your conduct and how you live. You'll, you'll, you'll want to form your life in obedience because you love me. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Jesus, in, upon salvation, gives us a new heart that gives us a want to, a desire to obey him. He says, do that. Additionally, he says, may your life be an example of faith. And faith in what? Faith in Christ. In, in Christ's word, his promises, that Timothy should be an example to the church that he is pastoring, that he believes and agrees with these words. I heard a pastor tell me one time that they, man, you know what, I'm a part of, there was a pastor who was a part of a denomination that said, yeah, well, well we don't really believe that, but we got to teach it. Anyone who teaches something they don't believe ought to never talk for the rest of their life. That's my opinion. At least on the subject in which they were speaking on, they should never talk. Timothy, set an example. Trust God. Believe what you preach. Additionally, he, he says, he, not just in good times. It's easy to trust God in good times. Ah, faith in Jesus in good times. But here... He's been warning Timothy about coming bad times. He could either have faith in his circumstances, which we all do. We tend to. We look at our circumstances and go, they're bleak and grim. And so I, have a, I put my, my faith in the reality I see today. Rather than put our faith in the God over our circumstances, we put our faith in our circumstances. Timothy, your faith, you should be an example to the church, the watching world. 
so that they can not put their faith in their circumstances, but they can put their faith in the God over their circumstances, or as he said already, in the hope of the living God. Lastly, he says to set example for them in purity. Literally, this word, the Greek word, it is referring to sexual purity. See, Satan's scheme before marriage is to get a couple to sleep together. After marriage is to keep them out of bed. Anyone who's married knows that that's true. That is how he works. But more than that, he's calling Timothy to, 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 be, to guard himself from sexual temptation and sexual sin. Sexual sin has wreaked havoc among the church of Jesus. Pastors and porn problems are probably the, it, it, the norm. Adultery, you see pastors having affairs. and you're, you're, What's going on in the church? Men in the church have followed suit. And then pastors want to stand up and then they want to make claims about sexuality refers to, in, in terms of gender or marriage. But they already punted on their responsibility a long, long time ago because they're secret sin. And you wonder, and this is where the unbelieving world is right. Their critique on, 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 on Christians who want to make a, a claim according to the scriptures, but they, in their mind they think it's an opinion about sexuality. And they're like, man, you're sexually deviant perverted as well. How can you make this claim? And he and Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you shouldn't be that type of pastor. Now, our authority is not in anything other than the word of God. So we can speak on authority, but, but God's men, God's pastors must, as he's telling Timothy, be sexually pure. One man, one woman forever. That's it. That's the, and so is there redemption? Is there sin? Is there, is there repentance? Absolutely. We should repent. There's hope. This isn't if you've sinned sexually, that, that there's no hope for you. What he is saying is that, that Timothy, your example should be one of loving your wife, having one wife, no secrets, no sexual sin, no sexual perversion, no secrets, forever with her. Be an example to the church. Timothy is to set an example and then call others to repentance as well. It's a tough assignment, right? All those things, right? It's to be an example in that day. Imagine, and we're in our day. Isn't this a tough assignment? It's a tough assignment Paul's given Timothy. How many friends do you think he has? He probably loses friends along the way. Imagine this. Like if he really obeys and believes this, is this going to get him like the, it's not going to get him CNN to come over and do a cover story about how awesome the church is. It's how CNN comes in, in because there's a protest outside. That's, this, is the, this is the type of stuff that, that Paul is telling Timothy in a world that is not devoted to Jesus, but in, in rebellion and opposition. Additionally, he tells him he has a pastoral duty, and this is where we'll begin to wrap it up. 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 16, he says, Until I come, this is great, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So there's this ancient practice in, in, in Judaism, which Paul was coming out of, that began it, and that, that was happening in God's people for centuries and generation after generation. This ancient practice is what they would do is they would, they would read the scriptures, the Bible or, or the Old Testament, and read the scriptures, and then a speaker would expound on it. That's what we call preaching. That's what we're doing right now. This isn't new. This is ancient. To exhortation is, is specifically to, to heralding God's word and to teaching, to applying it. 
This ancient practice, he's telling Timothy, devote yourself to preaching God's word. That's what you're going to do. In light of all those things, in your conduct, in your way of life, devote yourself to preaching, to preaching the Bible. That's awesome. Preaching is an address to God's gathered, assembled church. Preaching is saying, God said this. It's our job to obey it. It's It's not contemplative. It's heralding, teaching which what he commands him to do as well. So preach and teach. Teaching gives context, helps with application, and and helps us with our understanding of the word that has been preached. Paul is calling Timothy to remain faithful to a long, established means of God's grace. Century, generation after generation after generation, God has been calling his leaders in his church, started in in Judaism in the synagogue, continued through the Christian church to open God's word, the scriptures, to read them and explain them and do so with authority. It's what we do every Sunday. So I'm like, why do we do this? This is why. He says to Timothy, to do this, to devote himself to this, to, to, to not stop doing this. And this is the means. We must understand that this is the means by which God uses the, through the preaching of God's word to shape, form, and change the hearts of men and women who hear. We'll talk more at length on preaching this Wednesday at CG Collective when we look at corporate worship. So if you want to hear more about that, please join us for that. But for the sake of time, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Paul is telling Timothy to remain faithful to his ancient practice of preaching, to heralding God's word, to teaching the Bible. I want you to see this, that, that, that this is why God's people, the Jews, and even now the, the Christians, have always been known for to be a people of the book, the people of the scriptures. It's because, not because we have, we're some academic people who, who, who simply uh, go into our rooms and study, but we're a people who, who the people and their leaders are dedicated to the scriptures, to the book. Why? Because God spoke to us through it. He revealed himself to us through it. That's what the Bible is. It's not a good story. It's God telling us about who he is and who we are. Some of you like letters. If someone ever wrote you a letter, some of you are like, I like letters. If someone writes you a letter, it'd be kind of cool, right? If someone writes you a letter, you get a letter in the mail, and they just want to talk. They just want to tell you about their day. Pretty awesome. They'll tell you about some things to you. God has written a massive letter to you. Every day you have the opportunity to get up and read it. You can read a, you can read a sentence, change your life. You can read a chapter, change your life. But what you must do is read the book. Form your life to the book. This is God speaking to you. Some of you are like, I want to hear the word of God. I wish God would talk to me. Dust off the pages. Open up the app. Look at the words of Scripture. God has spoken. He says this to Timothy in the preaching. Do not neglect it. Do not neglect this gift which has been given to you by prophecy when the, when the, the council of elders lay their hands on you. What, it, the, what he's saying here is that this, this gift, it's, it's literally the, the, a Holy Spirit gift is what the word refers to in, in the Greek. Is that do not neglect what the Holy Spirit has given you. The gift that the Spirit of God has put in you. Meaning, I wanted you to see the connection here. The Holy Spirit wrote the book. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote it, and the Holy Spirit blesses it. So when, when Timothy, when you preach it, 
Because you've been called to it, the Spirit blesses it. When you deviate from the Scriptures and don't herald the Scriptures, the blessing of the Holy Spirit is not on you. Church, if you want the blessing of God the Holy Spirit on your life, form your life according to the words of the Scriptures. The Spirit has spoken. The Spirit wants to bless you and bless your life. It comes through the preaching and the obedience to the Word of God. I want you to see that's a supernatural thing. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a work of man. Some of you have stories. You've come in and you've heard preaching and then you, you leave here, man, changed or convicted. That's not something I do. I don't sit around and think about every single person in here and go, man, what would they want to hear? What would they need to hear? I got this one. Some of you are like, did you think of me when I wrote this? I, did, I promise I don't. I love you, but not that much. You know, I, I, I don't sit around and think about everyone's life and go, how am I going to fix put this one into to them and stick it to them on that one. I don't. I don't. If you feel that way ever, it's the Spirit of God working. It's what, the, what God has promised, that if, if his people, would, if his, his preachers would herald his word, the, it is my job to be faithful, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make it fruitful. He's telling Timothy the exact same thing. So what he's saying is like, Timothy, you live in a day, and if you remember the context of this entire book, hey, you live in a day where people have itching ears. They want, they want their, their appetites pleased. They want false teaching. They want things that are just gonna make them feel good. He says, in that day, Timothy, and where they want motivational speeches, they want TED Talks, Timothy, give them a sermon because they need that. It'll change their life. Don't placate to the culture. Give them God's word, Timothy. I want you to see this, church. What we are doing is an ancient practice. This is not something new, hip, or cool. This is not just old school, but this is, this is ancient school. This is an ancient practice that God's people have been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries into the present. What we are doing is simply obeying what God's people have been called to do and obey since the beginning of time. To hear from God through his word and conform their lives and obey him and obey his word. And he says to do it this way, practice these things. He says, be diligent, Timothy. Immerse yourselves in them, meaning give yourself to them, Timothy. This is your job, this is your assignment. Insurance selling would be great, Timothy's probably thinking. But no, he didn't get called to that. The Holy Spirit called him to this. You've been called to sell insurance, praise God. I've been called to preach, and this is what I'm called to do. And so that, you may, so that all may see your progress. He says, keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Timothy, stay in authority, but yes, you must be under authority. Do not deviate from God's word. Your, your faith, your, your teaching, your conduct, your submission to the elders, your submission to God's word matter. He says, persist in this. Don't give up. That's what persistence is. There's many days where Timothy probably wants to give up. He's a young guy. People don't like him. They think he preaches too long of sermons. I like the length of sermons Timothy preached. I don't know how long they were. <laughs> For by doing so, he says, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. That's the goal behind his preaching. That's the goal behind Paul's letters. That's the goal behind why I preach. It's because I want you to be saved. Timothy has a particular gift that the Holy Spirit has given. It's been affirmed by the elders, Paul says. 
He says, and, and additionally, I want you to see this, that the elder team, it's implied here that the elder team should be organized based off their gifting. Freeing one another up to do what? To not neglect their God-given assignment. So I love our elders. This is our, our elder team. Like we are, we, organize, we are organized in such a way that we are freed to walk in our God-given lane together. But we have different lanes. Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, the elders have affirmed that in you. And even though you're younger than them, you, you don't stand on your own authority. You stand under God's authority. And just because you are young, that doesn't mean that you can... Can, can just placate to the, the voices of the culture. Just because you want, the, you want to be liked doesn't mean you can, can edit the Bible, but you must herald the Bible. And Timothy, if you need some encouragement, the elders have already affirmed that in you. Moreover, God has called you to this. They've organized themselves so Timothy can, can work in his lane, that the other elders can serve in their lane, in their God-given assignments. Ministry, please hear me this, ministry is not a job opportunity. Ministry is not a way to pay the bills. The job that Paul is, called Tim, that Paul is speaking to Timothy about and, and, and called Timothy to is a calling. He doesn't have an option. He can either submit to God and obey him or he can rebel against him. And so, this is his goal. What is he after? He's after the salvation of his hearers. And so I want you to see this. He wants the people of God, those who don't know, love, and trust Jesus, to be saved. So if you don't know, love, and trust Jesus, we want you to be saved. That's why we do what we do. And if you know, love, and trust Jesus, we want you to walk in godliness, to walk more in Christ-likeness. That's why we, 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 we open the, book of the, the books of the Bible. We go verse by verse. We teach God's word. We explain God's word. We apply God's word. We get in groups throughout the week to discuss God's word. And we walk with one another through life so that we can discipline ourselves with the purpose of godliness. We can worship Jesus with all we say and do. That what we are a part of is not just something that's, that is a fad or fun, but it is, it is historic and, and it is rooted in the, the Savior, the living God. And it is fun. It is fantastic. And so this is what we are doing, and this is why we do it ultimately, because this life is not the only life we live, that there is an eternity. What we're doing in the present is practicing for eternity. So what do we do now? We respond. We respond. The word of God has been preached. The Holy Spirit has convicted hearts. It's been applied to the word of God has been applied individually by the Holy Spirit to each of you individually here and collectively to us as a church. So our, uh, what do we do now? We respond. The question is, will you respond in faith or in rebellion? Will you respond in faith and rebellion? If you haven't yet to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, that's your first step. Put your faith in Jesus. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, what has the Spirit of God been doing in your hearts and will you obey him? So we respond this way in worship. Worship meaning we obey what God has commanded and we praise him with our hearts. We respond, we're gonna respond in a moment through communion, which is remembering the salvation or the sacrifice of Christ Jesus for our salvation. Later, we'll have an opportunity to respond in giving. And what we're saying through giving is we're, we're saying, here's my offering, God. Save and sanctify people with this. Use this, Lord. 
later, and then also we will have the, the opportunity to respond through singing. Literally, singing is declaring as one voice praises to this good God and Savior, to our King Jesus. We're saying together, collectively, we love you, we worship you, we are here to be formed by you. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna respond. We're gonna repent of sin. We're gonna take communion. We're gonna give where God has called us to give. And we're gonna sing. And we're gonna leave here dedicated to living a life of obedience and worship to the one true and living God. His name's Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to worship and adore you right now. We ask that our worship would be acceptable and pleasing to you. As we go to the table, may we remember your good, great gift, your sacrifice in our place for our sins. May we not take that for granted or miss the power of the gospel there. May we sing as if you are truly alive and you're truly leading And may we live our lives as if worship is not something we only do on Sunday, but our life is full of it. Our life is centered around worshiping you, Jesus. So bless us unto that in Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.